Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from my office in central Hong Kong as we study together the Come Follow Me lesson for April 13th through 19th. And this week we'll be discussing the first through third chapters of Mosiah. Well, let me first start by saying I'm, uh, I'm recording this from Good Friday uh, in the middle of the fast that our prophet uh, encouraged us to participate in on behalf of uh, really the entire world who is struggling with this coronavirus situation. Um, it's uh, obviously been difficult for everyone. Uh, I'm back in Hong Kong. My family is quarantined in the U.S., so we're separated at the moment, uh, which remains a a, a difficult uh, situation, so I think we all have a lot to be fasting for. Um, but uh, that also means we just uh, just a few days removed from General Conference, and there was uh, something in General Conference that I wanted to just spend a few minutes sharing my thoughts about because it's something that's uh, very personal to me and also something I think I have uh, probably uh, a little bit uh, more uh, experience and given more thought to than, than a lot of other members who are, are almost certainly curious about it. And that is the announcement uh, that there will be a, Shanghai, a, a temple built in Shanghai, China. Uh, I, when the announcement came on, it was uh, uh, you know, two in the morning here in Hong Kong. So I was, uh, I was asleep. Um, actually, sorry, it was four in the morning. So I was definitely asleep. Uh, but I woke up to several messages um, from a home teacher, from my sister, saying, Ben, what are your thoughts on a temple in China? And I kind of rubbed my eyes. I was like, what are you talking about a temple in China? They must be talking about Hong Kong, but we've had that for 25 years here. Uh, and, and then, um, but as soon as they said that, I, I quickly went to see what was going on in conference. And I, I saw there's announcement of a, a Shanghai temple. And I went and I, I still couldn't believe it. So I actually looked at the video and... Of our prophet making that announcement, and uh, <laughs> similar to uh, what I'm experiencing now, I think this will for always be one of my favorite conference moments. And I especially love the 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 pause that he gave, uh, where he collected his own emotions, as I'm struggling to do right now, right before he announced the Shanghai Temple. Uh, you know, China has always been a place that's uh, near and dear to him, uh, to President Nelson. And uh, to be able to make that announcement must have been unbelievable for him. Because I know it was unbelievable for me as I heard it. Uh, now, I think kind of a, a word of caution, it'll be interesting to see how functional, I guess you could say, this, this temple is. I've, I've seen some 
speculation that it'll be it's nothing more as a tide me over until the Hong Kong temple is operating again. And that was closed in July and it was said for two years, uh, perhaps given coronavirus, uh, there, there might be delays to that. And it could be even longer than than the two year closure for the Hong Kong temple. But I, I don't get the feeling that this, even though there was the caveat, the context that President Nelson put out, I don't get the feeling that this is just a a temporary endowment house type of temple. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't get that feeling. I think it'll be, it, it'll be a much more permanent fixture than that is, is my guess. I certainly have no inside information on that, but given the emotion, uh, certainly all of the background work that must have gone into uh, laying the groundwork so that this could actually happen. Uh, I would be very surprised if this is if this is uh, not a, a permanent fixture. Uh, and that said, to me, I think perhaps the most important part of this is perhaps the the notion that it was even announced in the first place, because there must, as I said, there must have been a lot of groundwork that went into laying, making it possible for them to even make this announcement. And you have to understand that recently within China. Um, the, the current administration is, does not look upon religion uh, favorably. And so there, there's been a lot of difficulty for a lot of congregations throughout China, not just in our church, but uh, really within all religions. Um, and there's been a lot of concern about how, uh, what the church's status would be going forward and, and how uh, religion in general, what role it would have in China uh, over the next little bit. And for this announcement to come out at this time during these periods of uh, political uncertainty uh, within China as far as religion goes, and certainly given the dynamics between China and the rest of the world given coronavirus uh, and all of the uncertainty that's going on, to have this announcement now was uh, really incredible. Absolutely a miracle. So. Uh, something I'm obviously very emotional, very excited about. Uh, I don't know when it'll be ready. It'll be very interesting to see how long it takes to prepare this multi-use building, how elaborate it will be, uh, the, the ground-breaking process, the, uh, the preparation process, the dedication process, all that will be very interesting how that takes place within China. Um, I'm fascinating to see. Fascin I can't wait to see how this all plays out. Uh, very, very exciting time. So uh, something to be super excited about and just wanted to share kind of those thoughts with you uh, at, at the beginning of, of this lesson. Uh, you know, given, given my experience, given my uh, understanding of, of China and my love of China and the church, I mean, this is basically taking, you know, two of the things that I care about as, as much as anything, you know, my, my religion and, and, uh, and, and China. Um, and combining them in ways that I, I didn't think would be happening this soon. So obviously, wonderful, uh, an incredible miracle. And with that, we now turn to our, our lesson uh, for, for this week, uh, Messiah chapter 1 through 3. And uh, I think in order to understand where this is coming from, though, we first have to do a little bit of background to make sure we understand uh, King Benjamin and his situation, because we, this is discussing... Uh, King Benjamin and his uh, incredible uh, discourse, his unbelievable sermon here. Uh, we have to remember that um, going back to the book of Omni, we, 
we have a certain, uh, his name is Amalekai, and he inherited the plates from his father. Uh, and this Amalekai, he lived during the days of Mosiah, he tells us, who was King Benjamin's father. And in the days of Mosiah, there was a lot of fighting uh, between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and Mosiah was warned by the Lord that he should take as many people as would follow him and go with him into the wilderness, which he did. Uh, and so they left the land of Nephi, which must have been, I mean, I, I think we, we kind of glance over, glance over that, but to you know, think how difficult that must have been. Uh, these people have been inheriting this land, uh, living in this land for hundreds of years, and then all of a sudden, this land of Nephi, it's named after Nephi, right? Uh, they, they've, they've loved this land and it's been a great home for them for so long. And then all of a sudden for the Lord to tell them, all right, it's time you're going to have to leave this place. You're going to have to go somewhere else. Must have been a, a, a heart-wrenching decision uh, for, for Messiah to make. Uh, but he did and he left. And when he left, uh, his people eventually discovered another people, uh, the Mulekites, who had left uh, hundreds of years prior, uh, also from Jerusalem. And these people eventually started interacting with each other, entering into different uh, relationships, and they actually merged together. They were united as one people uh, under this King Messiah. Messiah was their king. Uh, king Messiah dies, and his son uh, Benjamin uh, takes over in his stead, and he becomes uh, the king of these of this combined people. And but but. It, Everything was not going well uh, among those people. As you can imagine, it would be very, very difficult to take two completely separate nations. Their languages must have been, uh, were completely different uh, to the extent that the Mulekites eventually learned the Nephite language. There must have been, uh, you know, people speaking with accents and, you know, uh, probably a very difficult to take two different people who are totally separate and merge them together into one tribe, into one people. And that was the challenge King... Uh, King Benjamin was inherited from his father, essentially. Uh, but that wasn't the only one. So uh, we learn in uh, we 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 learn in um, sorry we learn in the words of Mormon uh, that uh, in addition to fighting amongst his people, uh, there was also attacks from the Lamanites that King Benjamin had to deal with. Uh, and we also learned that there were false Christs, false prophets, false t preachers, and false teachers. Uh, who came and were making things difficult for King Benjamin in order to, to rule properly. And then there was also those who dissented and left this new tribe, this Nephite tribe, and went back and joined uh, the Lamanites. Uh, certainly not hard to imagine that there, not everybody left with Mosiah, so certainly some of the Nephites uh, who were probably in their mind abandoned by Mosiah uh, decided that they were going to stay with the Lamanites. Or perhaps they had no choice but to stay with the Lamanites. And then those that were in within this new merged uh, Nephite group, uh, when some of them decided to go back uh, and join the Lamanites. So a lot of difficulties uh, confronting uh, King Benjamin. But let's read uh, from the words of Mormon, verses 17 and 18, uh, about how he handled it. For behold, King Benjamin was a holy man, and he did reign over his people in righteousness. And there were many holy men in the land, and they did speak the word of God with power and with authority, and they did use much sharpness because of the stiff-neckedness of, of the people. 
Wherefore, with the help of these, King Benjamin, by laboring with all the might of his body and the faculty of his whole soul, and also the prophets, did once more establish peace in the land. So interesting uh, commentary by Mormon here about what was, uh, King Benjamin had to go through. Uh, in order to establish peace again in his land. I think sometimes when we start reading King Benjamin, we think, oh, he was king over these happy, wonderful people. And eventually, it seems like he got there. That's where he was, and that's what we'll be reading about today. But that by no means was the way it always was. He had a very difficult journey that he had to go through with his people in order to get to the point where they were all ready uh, to hear the fullness of the message that King Benjamin uh, that the Lord would have them here through King Benjamin. So, good background to keep in mind. Uh, and of course, in addition, uh, we, we should remember that with the beginning of Messiah, we are now leaving behind the small plates, uh, which had been kept, which is what we've been reading from the beginning of the Book of Mormon, because apparently, uh, in the words of uh, uh, in, in Omni chapter uh, verse 30, we learned that they were full, whatever that means. Somehow these plates were limited and they had become full. And so now we're transitioning from the small plates, which are all written in first person, to uh, the small to the large plates, uh, which are edited down by Mormon. So Mormon is now the editor of everything that we're going to read. Um, and so we'll see some interesting editorial commentary throughout uh, given by Mormon. Um, and, uh, and it's an interesting shift uh, that we need to be aware of here. So with that, let's turn now to uh, first chapter of the book of Messiah. Um, and as we discussed, at the end of his life here, King Benjamin finally has everything right with his people. His people are finally uh, no longer fighting with each other. He's finally got peace. They're no longer fighting with the Lamanites for whatever reason. Perhaps they've uh, beaten them back so badly that the Lamanites are no longer bothering them. Um, whatever the reason, the Lamanites are, they, they've got peace in the land, both internally and externally. They, they no longer have the threats uh, that they've had for, for so long. Um, and so in chapter one, we kind of get a glimpse into uh, King Benjamin interacting with his sons. He has three sons, uh, Messiah, Helaram, and Helaman. And he's uh, teaching them. He teaches them the importance of uh, having records and scriptures, uh, which to a people that had merged, again, with the Mulekites. And the Mulekites, you know, they're kind of famous for not having any records, and their language had been, it become completely corrupted. And they had no, uh, no recollection, no understanding. They had no scriptures, uh, no, no ability to comprehend the things of God, uh, or, or at least remember the things of God that they knew uh, when their ancestors left Jerusalem hundreds of years ago. So to King Benjamin, who was struggling to be king over this merging of two people, one who had the records the whole time and one who had no records, uh, of course, the importance of keeping records uh, would have been something that was first and foremost on his mind, something he no doubt thought about um, a lot. And so as he's teaching his sons uh, what they need to do, teaching them, preparing them, in the case of Messiah, to be the king, teaching his other sons certainly to be uh, teachers and other uh, positions of leadership among the people. First and foremost, as he teaches them, keep records, read the scriptures. Uh, it's critically important. Um, then we get an interesting, he takes that a step further, 
not only talking about the importance of it vis-a-vis -vis the, from the experience they've had with the Mulekites, but verse 5, I think, is also important. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, I say unto you, my sons, were it not for these things, which have been kept and preserved by the hand of God, that, ye might, that we might read and understand of his mysteries and have his commandments always before our eyes, that even our fathers would have dwindled in unbelief, and we, sh and we should have been like unto our brethren the Lamanites, who know nothing concerning these things, or even do not believe them when they are taught them, because of the traditions of their fathers, which are not correct. I love the insight we get from verse 5 here, that part of the struggle with the Lamanites is that not only do they not believe, not only do they not have these records and therefore they, they don't believe the same things that the Nephites do, the problem is they don't even have this background. They're not even raised in a way that makes it possible for them to believe when they hear these things. It says, you know, it says they don't even believe them when they are taught them. So because they're missing this background, um, they hear the gospel and it does not resonate with them. And that's not because, you know, the things that they're being taught isn't true, but it's in large part because they don't have these records. They are never taught about God, never taught about faith, never taught these important underlying concepts, which form an essential foundation for anyone to even believe the gospel once it's preached to them. And I think that's important for us as Latter-day Saints to keep in mind. Uh, first of all, how blessed we are, uh, those of us that had the privilege of growing up in a Latter-day Saint home, to, to have this foundation laid for us. Now, some might think that we've been uh, brainwashed from the time that we're young, but that's, you know, of course, not true. It's not that we've been brainwashed, it's that we've been taught that the foundation has been laid so that when we are in the process of building our own testimonies, it's on a foundation of belief in God, of faith in miracles, of appreciating that there's things that we simply cannot understand. For those that grow up uh, without these foundations, without believing in God, either in uh, atheist families or in families that, uh, for whatever reason, don't believe in, in, in miracles and don't believe in spiritual things, even if they are taught the truth, even if they are taught it persuasively by the Spirit, there's by no means no guarantee that they are going to be able to comprehend and to recognize the Spirit uh, when it's taught to them. Because like the Lamanites, they have not been taught uh, based on the scriptures, they have been not been taught these miracles. So just like the Lamanites, even when they hear the truth, they are not in a position, they are not ready and able to accept it uh, and to understand it. So I think a great insight into missionary work, into what we should be teaching our children, uh, certainly. We should be teaching them the scriptures. We should be teaching them of about God and about miracles and about faith and about recognizing that there are things that we don't understand. These are critical things for us to be teaching our children if we are going to lay the foundation for them and put them in a position to gain their own solid testimonies uh, of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, verses 7 and 8. And now, my sons, I would that ye should remember to search them diligently that ye may profit thereby. And I would that ye should keep the commandments of God, that ye may prosper in the land according to the promises which the Lord made unto our fathers. 
and many more things did King Benjamin teach his sons, which are not written in this book. So here, you know, this promise that has been reiterated many, many times throughout the Book of Mormon already. If you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. And then I find verse 8 to be interesting, because again, remember, we're getting into Mormon's uh, editorizing here. Um, and, and we see his doing some editing here. You know, he tells us there's a lot of other things that King Benjamin taught them. It's likely recorded in some record somewhere, but Mormon, as he's uh, compiling his record of what he wants to eventually, you know, make it into what we have here is the Book of Mormon. He basically says, you know, there's a lot more I could say, but I just don't have, I just don't have room. So, um, and we'll, we'll see a lot of these going forward. So it's always interesting to, to keep note of, of those. You can see, you know, really begin to appreciate that this was an actual process, that Mormon was an actual person, that he was actually out there uh, editing things. And you can, you know, very first chapter in which we make this shift from the, from the small plates to the large plates, we already see Mormon doing uh, editing work that we didn't see at all when we were in the small plates. So, you know, just in my mind, just a little, you know, small nugget of truth and uh, authenticity here uh, as to the process for which the Book of Mormon came about. Uh, verses 11 and 12. And moreover, I shall give this people a name that thereby they may be distinguished above all the people which the Lord God hath brought out of the land of Jerusalem. And this I do because they have been a diligent people in keeping the commandments of the Lord. And I give unto them a name that never shall be blotted out except it be through transgression. So this concept of a people being given a name um, would have been incredibly important uh, to, again, this merging of two people, these Nephites that fled with Mosiah and the Mulekites that they stumbled upon and they came together. They clearly would have been, you know, a lot of disagreement between the two of them, you know, probably fighting between Nephites and Mulekites. Maybe the Nephite kids refused to play with the Mulekite kids. And King Benjamin says, no, I'm going to give you guys one name that you can unite under by which you will be called going forward. And of course, that is uh, an important lesson to us as members of the church because we too have taken upon ourselves a name, even the name of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of the background that we come from, we're just like King Benjamin's people, all should be united under one name. Uh, now let's turn to chapter 2 in which he actually gives his address. And I love... Uh, I love the imagery that comes with, with the situation. You have this old king who's worked so hard uh, to bring his people, uh, to, to prepare them, to get them to this place where they are ready to hear his message. It's the end of his life. He's about to retire from his kingship. They've all gathered together around this temple. Certainly it was probably a new temple that had been built recently because, again, they... They left the temple, the temple that they built in the time of Nephi uh, in the land of Nephi when Messiah and his people uh, left the land of Nephi. So they've got this new temple that's recently been built and they're gathered around it. And we learn that it's every family in their own tent facing the temple, preparing to hear the words of their prophet king. And it just reminded me of the situation that we were in just a few days ago as we listened to general conference, as we were all gathered together with our own families. We didn't even have the option this year of going and 
participating live uh, in the Great Conference Center uh, because of the coronavirus, but instead we all had to gather together as families to hear uh, the Word of God. So, you know, you hear this and it's, it's must have been like a great, uh, incredible general conference. And then King Benjamin begins his address, and he does it with a bang. Verse 9. And these are the words which he spake and caused to be written, saying, My brethren, all ye that have assembled yourselves together, you that can hear my words which I shall speak unto you this day, for I have not commanded you to come up hither to trifle with the words which I shall speak, but that you should hearken unto me and open your ears that you may that ye may hear, in your hearts that ye may understand, in your minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view. So he gets things started right away. He says, look, I didn't tell you to come up here to listen to me so that we could have some debate. He says, I'm about to teach you the mysteries of God. I'm about to teach you truth. The only question is whether or not you're going to accept it. So a very bold way uh, for King Benjamin to, uh, to begin his address. Uh, and then afterwards, he starts off by reminding them of the great things that he has done for them. Okay, verses 12 through 13. And I say unto you that as I have been suffered to spend my days in your service, even up to this time, and have not sought gold nor silver nor any manner of riches of you, neither have I suffered that ye should be confined in dungeons, nor that ye should make slaves one of another, nor that ye should murder or plunder or steal or commit adultery, nor even that I, or, nor even have I suffered that ye should commit any manner of wickedness, and have taught you that ye should keep the commandments of the Lord in all things which he hath commanded you. And even I myself have labored with mine own hands that I might serve you, and that ye should not be laden with taxes, and that there should be nothing come upon you which was grievous to be borne. And of all these things which I have spoken, ye yourselves are witnesses this day. So obviously King Benjamin was a great king. There's no two, two ways about it. But... Why would he go into great detail about reminding them of all the wonderful things that he's done for them as, as, his, as their king? That he's, you know, come down and labored among them, that he hasn't demanded anything from them in terms of gold and silver, and that he's taught them righteousness. Because this description he gives, especially the thought of a king that leaves his high throne and comes down and lives with and labors among the people should remind us of another king. That king, of course, being our Savior, Jesus Christ. King Benjamin is setting himself up here, teaching the people that he is a type of Jesus Christ in the way that he labored among the people. That his pattern for the way in which he led his people, for the way in which he served as their king, was none other than the King of Kings. It was Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, now let's read the famous verse 17. And behold, I tell you these things that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. So knowing that King Benjamin and the service he provided was a type of the service Jesus Christ provided, I think that sets up verse 17 a little bit differently. The reason that when we are in the service of our fellow men, we are only in the service of our God, is not that we look, is not only that we look at 
our brothers and sisters who we can serve as, you know, portals through which we can serve God. There certainly is that aspect. You see someone who's struggling and you see them as God and you take advantage of that opportunity to, I guess, pretend like you were serving God as you serve someone else. There certainly is there that aspect and there's nothing wrong with that. But but King Benjamin is teaching us here, I think, by setting himself up in a way that parallels the way that Jesus Christ served us. He's teaching us that as we serve other people, we are acting as God. We are acting on behalf as of God. We are acting as God's servants and that we go out among the people and do what God would have us do. So we are acting with authority from God. We are acting as agents of God as we go out and serve other people. We are doing what God would have us do as we serve our fellow men. So it's not just that they step in for God and we have a chance to serve God by serving them, but rather as we are serving them, we, are, we should be providing the type of service that God would have us provide. And so as we interact, and I, and I think in my mind, the difference between that is, and it's a very distinct difference, but as we serve other people, we shouldn't look upon them with pity. Because I think that's often the problem that we can get into if we, if we do certain types of services, is that we start to think, you know, oh, I'm so great, I you know, came down from you know, my, my comfortable house to, to serve these people who are less fortunate than me. Uh, developing almost like a God complex as we, as we view others. But, but of course, that's not the way God views us. He views us with unconditional love. So we shouldn't look at others as we serve them with pity, but we must look at them in the way that God looks at them as his children, as people that he loves so much that he gave his life for them. And it's with that spirit that we go forth and we serve others. We provide to others that which they cannot provide to themselves as we serve others. So it's a very fine distinction, but I, I find meaning, uh, I find some meaning in it. And then, uh, of course, another aspect of this, as we step in for God and as we serve others, um, I, I think it's important to remember that the way in which God serves us is very, very personal. Last week, we spent uh, all of General Conference <clears throat> celebrating the, the restoration. And as Truman Madsen taught in his incredible lectures on the prophet Joseph Smith, one of the reasons what Joseph Smith taught was so difficult for people to accept was that he taught a very personal God. He taught a God that was not just some spirit floating about that had uh, mystical command over the universe. No, he taught a father with a body of flesh and blood, or a flesh um, that comes down, provides personal revelation, and gets involved in our lives. So as we serve others, if we think that simply writing a tithing check or even a fast offering is going to be enough of service to get the benefits that we're supposed to from service, 
I'm afraid we're gravely mistaken. Serving others requires us to get involved in their personal lives in ways that are probably not going to be comfortable for us because that is the way that God is involved in our life. He's a personal father. And he goes into our hearts to see where that service is necessary. And I would say that's part of why the home teaching program was so successful. And now that it's been elevated to this ministering program, I see that as a true aspect of this great program is that it gives us a chance to really get involved with people's lives, to really see how they live, to understand what's going on in their hearts, or at least it should if we're doing it right, so that we can get involved, so that we can help, and we can serve in very, very personal ways. We're not just writing a check and say, here, here you go. I have pity upon you. Take some of my money. That's not the service that we're supposed to be doing. That's good. That's better than doing nothing. But it seems like the service we're supposed to do is be like, come, like King Benjamin did. Come down, step in for God, do what God would do for these people. And that surely involves getting personally involved in their lives and helping them in personal and meaningful ways. And with that, we now turn to some of his most profound teachings. Uh, verses 20 and 21. I say unto you, my brethren, that if ye should render all the thanks and praise which your whole soul has power to possess to that God who has created you and has kept and preserved you and has caused that ye should rejoice and has granted that ye should live in peace one with another, I say unto you that if ye should serve him who has created you from the beginning is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath that ye may live and move and do according to your own will and even supporting you from one moment to another I say, if ye should serve him with all your whole souls, yet ye would be unprofitable servants. Wow, that kind of hurts. No matter what we do, we are going to be unprofitable servants. And let's keep reading to find out the reason why. And behold, all that he requires of you is to keep his commandments. And he has promised you that if ye would keep his commandments, ye should prosper in the land. And he never doth vary from that which he hath said. Therefore, if you do keep his commandments, he doth, he doth bless you and prosper you. And now in the first place, he hath created you and granted unto you your lives for which ye are indebted unto him. And secondly, he doth require that ye should do as he hath commanded you. For which, if ye do, he doth immediately bless you. And therefore, he hath paid you and ye are still indebted unto him and are and will be forever and ever. Therefore, of what have ye to boast? All right, so here we have kind of a problem on our hands as God's children. We are forever unprofitable servants. And why is that? Because he's already given us our lives. He's given us this amazing world. He's given us our families. He's given us so much, so much, that we are enormously indebted to him. And if we try to repay him by doing what he asks us to do, by keeping his commandments, he blesses us for that. And so even if we're trying to get out of this debt, he keeps paying us back for the little things that we do. It's like if on your mortgage, every time you made a payment to your principal, the bank said, oh, thank you for paying that back. Here's a little more. And then we just keep getting more and more 
and debt. We can never get out of it. And so perhaps we have a problem on our hands. We are forever unprofitable servants. But the solution to that problem, I would posit, is not to try to pay off the debt because King Benjamin has taught us here that's impossible. We're never, ever going to be able to pay it back. So what's the solution? What do we do? We don't need to pay it back because we're not servants. We are children. And every parent knows children are unbelievably unprofitable. My kids cost me a lot of money. But I don't care. And I can't imagine any parent does. Nobody has children because they expect to profit from them. The calculations that go into whether or not you're going to have another child are very different than the calculations the business owner makes when they decide whether or not they're going to hire another person. You're not going to hire someone if that person doesn't contribute to your bottom line because they will be unprofitable to you and you would have been better off having never hired them. But parents don't make those same considerations when they decide whether or not to have children. And you're, and even though your parents are unpro your children are unprofitable to you, as a parent, you don't care. And why is that? Because you love your children. You're not in it for the profit. You're not in it because they expect you expect them to pay you back at some point. In fact, if they tried to pay you back, I think that would probably be pretty heartbreaking. It would show that the way that they view you is like a boss or a bank rather than an actual parent. And I believe that's absolutely the way God views us. He knows we are unprofitable, but he doesn't care because he loves us. We are his children. He does not expect us to pay him back. What is it he wants? Well, this is a small nugget in the very middle of verse 34, and I'm not even going to read the entire verse 34. Just this part in the middle where it says, Ye are eternally indebted to your heavenly Father to render to him all that you have and are. So the way in which we pay back heavenly Father is not by doubling our efforts or by working extra hard. It's by giving him what we have. And I want to again share this quote that I absolutely love from Elder Maxwell. I believe I shared it in my last lesson, so I apologize for being repetitive but it's unbelievably profound. And in it, he says, In conclusion, the submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give, brothers and sisters, are actually the things he has already given or loaned to us. However, when you and I finally submit ourselves by letting our individual wills be swallowed up in God's will, then we are really giving something to him. It is the only possession which is truly ours to give. So that agency thing that the Lord preserved for us, even at the cost of jeopardizing the salvation of one third, of one third part of his children, that whole agency thing, our will, our hearts, that thing that is truly ours, that is the price we have to pay if we wish to un do this debt that we have to our Father. We have to give 
our heart to him. As King Benjamin taught in verse 34, we have to give him all that we have and are. And that's hard. But that's what we have to do as a token of our love and our gratitude to our Father in heaven. So I I love the teachings, the way that King Benjamin looks at indebtedness. We are forever going to be unprofitable servants, but we're not servants, so it doesn't matter. We are his children, and he loves us. And the way we repay that love is not by working doubly hard, but by giving him our hearts, by giving him everything that we have, by giving our agency to him to do Uh, to let him carry out his will in our lives and upon us. Let's uh, move to the end of chapter 2 now, verses 40 through 41. And he's just, at at the end here, before we get into these verses, he's taught about how difficult it is for those who transgress against uh, the commandments. And then starting in verse 40, he says, Oh, all ye old men, and also ye young men, and ye little children, who can understand my words? For I have spoken plainly unto you that ye might understand. I pray that ye should awake to a remembrance of the awful situation of those that have fallen into transgression. And moreover, I would desire that ye should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. And if they hold out faithful to the end, they are received into heaven and thereby they may dwell with God in a state of never-ending happiness. Oh, remember, remember that these things are true, for the Lord God hath spoken it. And it's important to keep in mind that when he talks about those that have fallen into transgression, he's talking about all of us, and we are in that awful state. And the only way we can get out of that state is to keep the commandments. It is to repent. It is to turn unto Christ. And so we have on the one hand that awful state of those that don't keep the commandments, which is all of us. And then we have the happy state, the blessed and happy state that King Benjamin teaches us to consider, to think upon, to ponder about. The blessed and happy state of those that repent and keep the commandments. And so now he's going to shift from our situation and the service that he has provided from uh, as serving as king of these people to a message that was delivered to him uh, by an angel from God. And not surprisingly, any message that's delivered by an angel of God is always going to focus on Jesus Christ. That's the, certainly the way it was with Nephi in his dream, and that's the way it is with King Benjamin. Angels come to teach and to witness of Jesus Christ. And he's here going to teach us now how we go from that wicked, miserable state of those who transgress the commandments, which is all of us, to the blessed and happy state that we all should aspire to. Verses 4 and 5. For the Lord hath heard thy prayers, and hath judged of thy righteousness, and hath sent me to declare unto thee that thou mayest rejoice, and that thou mayest declare unto thy people that they may also be filled with joy. For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord omnipotent, who reigneth, who was, and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, and shall go forth amongst men, working mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, 
causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. It's interesting, this angel begins his message and says, I give you permission to be happy. And I give your people permission to be happy as well. And why do they have this permission? What do they have to be happy about? Because Jesus Christ is going to come down among his people. Just as you, King, ben King Benjamin, came down and labored among your people, just as you didn't gain any reward personally, just as you didn't become rich from the labors that you did, performed as a king, so too shall Jesus Christ come down among his people. He will go forth serving them. He will be working miracles among them. He will be healing their sicknesses, them of their sicknesses, causing, the, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, doing all these wonderful things as he goes about serving his people. And so because of that, the angel says, I give you permission to be happy because this is how you're going to get out of that problem. That problem of that we all commit sin and that we are all in a miserable state. Okay, verses 6 and 7. And he shall cast out devils or the evil spirits which dwell in the hearts of the children of men. And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. What powerful teaching here that Christ comes to cast out devils and evil spirits which dwell in the hearts of the children of men. That's one of the reasons he's come. Because we all have these devils, these evil spirits that dwell within our hearts that cause us to commit sin, that tempt us and challenge us and persuade us not to keep the commandments of God. We all have these challenges and Christ has come to cast those out. And he suffers temptation and pain and body and hunger. He comes down and suffers as we have suffered. He goes through the challenges, the trials, the temptations that you and I go through. And then in the end, he's killed and blood comes from every pore as he suffers for his people. And I love this little insight why does blood come from every pore in verse 7? Because so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. The reason blood came from every pore from his body is because he was so heartbroken over the sins of his people, over the mistakes that he makes. And I think that must be a type of love and a feeling that is so profound that I have a hard time appreciating it. I can't imagine being so sad that I physically have a reaction even close to being as horrible as that of the Savior's when blood came from every pore. But he was so sensitive and he loved us so deeply that that's exactly what happened to him. Uh, so great insight here from King Benjamin as to just getting a little bit more insight as to the atonement. 
as to why he suffered the way that he suffered. And it is because he loved the way that he loved. Verses 9 and 10. And lo, he cometh unto his own, that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith on his name. And even after all this, they shall consider him a man, and shall say that he hath a devil, and shall scourge him, and shall crucify him. And he shall rise the third day from the dead. And behold, he standeth to judge the world. And behold, all these things are done that a righteous judgment might come upon the children of men. Further insights into the atonement here. And really a perfect uh, verse, two verses to think about uh, as we prepare for Easter, which as I'm recording this is only two days away. He came unto his own that salvation might come unto the children of men, even through faith in his name. He came to bring salvation to us through faith in his name. And we'll talk about the importance of his name in just a few minutes. Um, but of course, those that he came among did not accept him and they eventually killed him. But he rose the third day and he did all of this. All of these things were done in verse 10, that a righteous judgment might come upon the children of men. Everything that he endured in his death and the resurrection that he went through, the whole purpose of it is so that we can be judged righteously. And I think when we talk about being judged righteously, we're talking about the perfect coming together of justice and mercy. Because only that is right or righteous. As these two eternal principles meet together through the atonement of Jesus Christ, made possible by his death, by his suffering, and by his resurrection. It is in, some, in ways that I can, don't think I'll ever be able to comprehend while I'm in this earth. That action by him brings together mercy and justice in ways that are right, in ways that are good, so that we can be judged rightly or righteously, so that we can receive the inheritance that our Lord would have us receive, that God has prepared for us, so that we can progress and continue to become more and more like him. Uh, verses 12 through 13. But woe, woe unto him who knoweth that he rebelleth against God, for salvation cometh to none such, except it be through repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord God hath sent his holy prophets among all the children of men to declare these things to every kindred, nation, and tongue, that thereby whosoever should believe that Christ should come, the same might receive remission of their sins and rejoice with exceedingly great joy, even as though he had already come among them. Verse 12, I think, is, you know, we often read this and think, oh man, he's talking about the wicked people here. Well, no, he's talking about those that rebelleth, rebelleth against God. That's you and me. That's you and me that don't keep the commandments. And how do we know this? Because it doesn't come to anyone, to any of these wicked, rebellious people that don't keep the commandments of God, except for repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I'm a rebellious person that doesn't keep the commandments of God, I need to repent and I need to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we are all in that same boat. And King Benjamin is quick to remind his people he's in that same boat as well. That whoever believes in Christ might receive a remission of their sins and rejoice with exceedingly great joy. And this is interesting, even though he had already come among them. So even though this is, in this case, about 120 years before Christ is even born, they can receive that same remission of their sins as if the atonement had already happened. Which in ways that I can't comprehend illustrates the infinite nature of the atonement. It's infinite in time. Meaning that it's more than just retroactive. It more than just undoes things that happened historically. It has effect before it even took effect. Which is completely mind-blowing to me, but just shows how powerful God is and how truly infinite and eternal the atonement of Jesus Christ and should humble and remind each of us how limited our understanding is as well. A concept we'll turn to very quickly. From here we go to verse 17. And moreover I say unto you that there shall be no other name given nor any other way nor means whereby salvation can come unto the children of men only in and through the name of Christ the Lord Omnipotent. So salvation comes through the name of Christ, which is powerful. Uh, last summer, I had the unique opportunity of sitting in a sacrament meeting uh, in which Elder Christofferson was attending. And they left the last few minutes appropriately so that this apostle could bear his testimony uh, to the members of uh, that ward that I was participating in that Sunday. And I'll never forget, he made the interesting comment that as an apostle, he was called to be a special witness of the name of Jesus Christ. Which got me thinking, what is the difference between being a, an apostle and a witness of, the, of Christ and a witness of the name of Jesus Christ? And I think it's similar to what we're getting at in verse 17 here. Are we saved through Christ or are we saved through the name of Jesus Christ? According to verse 17, it's salvation comes only in and through the name of Christ. Now, that could just be a fancy way of saying, well, Christ, the name of Christ is Jesus Christ. So uh, it's the same thing. Um, but think about names. And remember this people, one of the things that King Benjamin promised this people he was going to give them was a name that would unite them because we had two separate people brought together as one just as we are with God the Father and we need to be brought together as one with him and that only happens through a process of at-one-ment or atonement and the way just as these people that King Benjamin is king over will be brought together as they share a common name, we are brought together with God the Father, with our heavenly parents, with all of our brothers and sisters even. We are all brought together through this common name, through the name of Jesus Christ. And each week we partake of the sacrament and we testify, we witness to 
God the Father, if you listen carefully to the words, that we are willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. We are willing to be part of that family that is all united together under one holy name, under the name of Jesus Christ. And of course, those who have been endowed know that within the temple, we literally take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. We promise that we are willing to do so when we are baptized and we renew that covenant every week as we partake of the sacrament, but it's in the temple that we take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, literally. Thus uniting us together with all those who have similarly partaken upon themselves the name of Christ. And therefore, the name of Jesus Christ is the only name by which we can be saved, by which we can be brought back together as one with our brothers and sisters, with our families, and with our heavenly parents in a beautiful process of atonement, all made possible by the name of Jesus Christ or the uniting that comes together, the at-one-ment that happens under the name of Jesus Christ. Verses 18 through 19, and we'll end with these two verses. For behold, he judgeth, and his judgment is just. And the infant perisheth not that dieth in his infancy. But men drink damnation to their own souls, except they humble themselves and become as little children, and believe that salvation was and is, and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ the Lord Omnipotent. For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him even as a child doth submit to his father." So much we could unpack in these two verses. Um, but we'll close, uh, as I said, with these thoughts and tying it together with the name and the importance of a name. Think of your own last name and how it symbolizes your connection to your family, your connection to your father. Because you were willing and you took upon yourself the name of that father and just as you were willing to do so to symbolize to the world that you were a part of your family so too we should take upon ourselves the name of Christ becoming as a child submissive meek humble patient full of love and willing to submit all things to Christ willing to submit all things that Christ would have us submit to and and I think another takeaway from these verses, this idea that in order to prepare ourselves, in order to qualify for the blessings of salvation, we take upon ourselves the name of Christ and we have to put off the natural man. We have to become like little children in that we are willing to believe what Christ wants us to believe. And that can be really hard, especially as you get older. 
especially as you increase in experience and understanding, because then the tendency is to rely more and more upon your own experience, more and more upon your own understanding. And unfortunately, that can make it, while that brings, can bring about experience and wisdom and knowledge, important things that make life easier and can bring about great blessings. It also sometimes makes it more difficult for us to simply put our faith in Jesus Christ in the same way that a child does. But King Benjamin teaches us here that's the difference between the natural man, the man who looks around at the natural world that relies upon his experiences with the natural world and limits his faith, limits his understanding to those experiences. That's the difference between that natural man who has a limited faith and the saint. Because the saint is willing to yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and put off the natural man, becoming a saint through the atonement of Christ. So we have on one hand the natural man who is not like a child who relies on their own experiences. And then we have a saint who submits their will, as he earlier taught us we have to, to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, who confronts situation that they're not sure how to move forward with, and instead of relying solely upon their own experiences, and I'm not saying take experience and throw it away. Experience is undeniably essential. But we have to temper that experience and add on top of that experience and give priority to the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Those teachings that come from a loving spiritual father, even Jesus Christ, who teaches us, who works with us and encourages us to be more and to understand more and in ways that we otherwise would not if we were relying solely upon the natural man. And so there must be areas of our lives, must be areas of our understandings, I believe, in which the only answer that we can provide is like what Nephi said. I know that God loves me, but I do not know all things. Because if we believe that we know all things, if we believe that we have sufficient experience to understand all things, that's the natural man in us. There must be areas in our lives in which we will say, you know what, this doesn't make sense. I don't get it, but I know that God loves me and I will submit my will to him just as my children sometimes <laughs> submit their will to me. Just as my child will come to me with a, fa with a question that is troubling them, something about the way the world works that they don't understand. And they say, Dad, what's going on here? Why is this the way it is? And at that point, as a parent, you're put in an unbelievably powerful position because you have the privilege of enlightening your child and of teaching them and of building your trust in them. And as you teach them and as you show them from your experience, they gain confidence in you. And that is what we must do with Jesus Christ and with our Heavenly Father submitting our wills to him, coming to them and saying, I don't get it, but I trust you. 
And if you'll help me to understand, I will trust you. I will exercise faith in you. I will give my will. I will give my heart to you. Trusting you and moving forward in these areas that don't make sense to me, but which I know make sense to you. And I pray that we will all exercise that type of faith as we submit our will to God. And I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.